You're listening to Life and Leadership, A Conscious Journey, the podcast that shares wisdom and strength. Join your host, Dr. Michelle St. Jane's weekly conversation on how to have a positive impact for people, planet, and the wider world. If you want to live a life of intention, be proactive with your time, and bring your vision for the future to life one today at a time, you are in the right place at the right time. Let's get started. Led by Mary Gentili, PhD, she gives voices to values and fills a long-standing critical gap in the development of values-centered leadership. Let's look backwards, let's look forwards to giving voice to values. Mary is a professor at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business, educating for values-driven leadership, innovating new ways it's of values-driven leadership and its inclusion in business education and the workplace. She is all about challenging the assumptions about business ethics at companies and business schools. She believes giving voices to values is a critical step towards developing value-centered leadership. Giving voice to values starts from the place that most of us wish to act on our values and hope we have a reasonable chance of doing so effectively and successfully. The questions to consider, what if I were going to act on my values? What would I say and do? How could I be the most effective? Dan and Chip Heath, authors of The Switch and Made to Stick, said, giving voice to values heralds a revolution in ethics education. It's like a self-defense class for your soul. Welcome, Mary. It is fantastic to have you here today. And I want to lead off with what is the main purpose of giving voice to your values? You've been at this a long time. Yes, thank you. It's great to be here too, Michelle. Thank you. Yes, giving voice to values or GVV, as I refer to it. It's an innovative approach to values-driven leadership development. I created it about 10 or 12 years ago now. It grew out of my experience working with business schools, MBA education, and with companies around values and ethics and action and decision-making. And it frankly grew out of my frustration with the way we typically did corporate training and business education. I wanted to come up with what I think is a better approach. Well, I am very grateful. My doctorate is with the top 20% of global leaders, and I've discovered this Janus approach. So they'd have their corporate CEO hat on, and it was profit at any price, the sacred money market, as Dave and Corton calls it. And then during the conversation, they'd take off the hat and say, <laughs> as a father, as a grandfather, <laughs> as a member of this community, I really struggle with this. So there was a, a massive contribution given to the research in terms of their willingness to be honest and to contribute. So I'm very grateful to see what you've done because I'm curious mm-hmm. to know how did you come to write Giving Voice to Values? Because there's a whole <laughs> series of them accountants, lawyers, doctors. Can you tell us the story behind that? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, as I say, it grew out of my experience. I was a faculty member and researcher at Harvard Business School for 10 years. I helped to create their first required curriculum around ethics and values and business decision-making. And then I was consulting to other business schools and to companies And I just frankly became disillusioned. I became discouraged with the way we approach these issues. We tended to approach them as if they were entirely cognitive issues. You know, if we're going to give you a a good decision-making framework and we would teach you the rules and we'd teach you the philosophical models or reasoning, 
And then we'd give you some dilemmas and you would put the dilemma in the box of the framework and then the right answer would come out the other side and then we were done. I call it the preach and pretend method. You know, we'd preach to you about what's right and then we'd pretend you could do it. And I became frustrated because what I saw was that, sure, there were those issues that were complicated and that people needed help thinking through, but that wasn't the end of it. There were a lot of issues where where many of us actually knew what we thought the right thing to do was. We just didn't necessarily think it was possible. It's the example you gave of the Genesis CEO, you know, on the one hand, they feel like they have to do one thing. And on the other hand, they're not so comfortable with it. And I think that happens all the way down the organization. It's not just the CEO who feels these conflicts. So I was frustrated and I took a step back from the work because I just felt that what we were doing was, was, you know, at best futile and maybe at worst a little hypocritical. But then I started to come across research in a number of different disciplines, psychology and neuroscience, et cetera, behavioral ethics. And I also started gathering stories from uh, managers at every level, you know, right out of business school to CEOs and C-suite execs. And I started to hear stories of people who were saying, you know, I had this values conflict and, and I found a way to act effectively, or maybe they they didn't, but they were regretted it, you know, and I started to see from the research that maybe this entirely cognitive approach wasn't really the most effective way to, to do it. I started learning that a lot of the psychology was suggesting that if you really want to have an impact on people's behavior, that rehearsal and pre-scripting and peer coaching, literally practice was a more effective way to help people. It's because we were learning from the psychology is that many of us, when we encounter a values conflict, we tend to react automatically, emotionally, even unconsciously. And then we rationalize after the fact why it was the right thing to do or the only thing we could do. And so when you just approach it intellectually, you're not getting at that emotional reaction. And so what I was um, thinking is what we really needed to do was to create a different approach. So we created what we call the giving voice to values thought experiment. So I would never ask you, Michelle, what would you do in this scenario? Instead, I'd give you a scenario where the protagonist would know what he or she thought the right thing to do was. And the question to you would be, how could they be successful? What would they need to say and do? And what would the pushback be? And then what would they say and do? And, you know, would they do this alone or would they have to build a network? And is it one conversation or is this a systemic issue that's going to require a long-term kind of strategy? And so we get people literally rehearsing and practicing and creating what I call a moral muscle memory. And so the idea is that you've literally, instead of just approaching it cognitively, you're literally rewiring that, that reaction. Because now when, when I encounter these scenarios, I have examples in mind of people who've addressed similar situations effectively. And I've also practiced some of the scripts and action plans that might be effective. Because what I was learning from all my story collection is that these uh, reactions and resistance and objections are fairly predictable. <laughs> they're powerful, but they're not bulletproof. But it's really hard to come up with ways to address them in the moment. And that's why we have those emotional reactions. So instead, I'm literally trying to give people this sort of safe space, this kind of laboratory to practice and rehearse and build the muscle memory. 
Oh my gosh, I could unpack a whole million things in that. But I think what I'll do is just share some experience. Well, I score very high as an optimist and an idealist, and I know my values <laughs> and what I value. But in the very early days of my career, early 90s, I had a background in insurance and went into banking. And in banking, although they insured directors and officers, these directors and officers were holding about three or 400 directorships. And that was the norm. And I was newly minted lawyer. So I raised the issue and said, is this wise? If you have an impact, then there's <laughs> a very high probability of an impact. It will affect your premiums. It will affect your reputation. And bankers don't like that. And I basically got told, this is how we've done it. You're just a little junior. Go about your business. And I was like, oh, okay, this is a career challenging moment because if I don't speak up, my integrity is on the line. If I do speak up, my career is on the line. <laughs> and of course, there weren't a lot of women in business at that time in those areas I was in. My second experience was I had the chance to work in the reinsurance industry on the edge of space exploration. So satellites and rockets were going up. And I was right up close with seeing how they were financed. And basically, they either blew up or they went up and became space jump. So again, this is the 90s. So I was too far ahead of my time. And I'm saying, this is not a good idea. Do we really want all this near-Earth orbit junk circling mm -hmm. us? Yeah. And again, I was probably well ahead of the days before risk management came in. And mm -hmm. again, I'm asking, are we working as fervently on financing this as we are at resolving the issues and problems in space environment. Of course, I didn't have the lexicon at that time. And I got basically told, don't worry about it. But I was very worried about it. <laughs> I'd seen the Columbia explode. I'd seen, seen the Challenger explode. But again, I was just met with, this is how we do it. And this is how you'll do it. And I'm like, ah, I don't think so. But we didn't have a lexicon, and certainly people were not speaking up. And then mm. in my doctorate, believe it or not, I was able to get religious diversity, geographical diversity with global CEOs, but I couldn't get women. Women were not prepared to speak. Pardon me? You mean to interview? Yeah, to be part of the ah. field research. They said no. And the basic comeback was, we're not like you you will take the risk of speaking truth to power, basically. And I'm, mm. I'm paraphrasing in my own name. And I was like, mm. if I stand alone, <laughs> mm. you know, so I did it in a doctorate nonetheless. But that was a real <laughs> With you. that, you know, women were saying that to me six or seven years ago. No. And I'm like, wow, like, this is not cool. But that's what it was. And it became one of the major outcomes, again, in my doctorate around this. Because so I'm very glad to know you've been out there. In fact, you're actively <laughs> building pilots in education and business, aren't you? Yeah. I think a statistic I saw is you're up to about 1,300 pilots now. Well over that, because we give much of this away for free. Those are just the people who've contacted me. <laughs> so, Wow. So that's a great way of getting that out. And you're also out there, like, was it last week, you were at the Global Business Ethics Teaching Workshop? I give many talks every week. I'm not sure which one you mean, but yeah, I gave a couple talks last week. You're really out <laughs> Got a couple there. more this week. <laughs> yeah, you're really out there spreading the word, both educationally and corporate. Was that by choice or by chance? 
Well, you know, I've, I've been working in this field for a number of decades. And like I say, I got frustrated about 10 or 12 years ago and just stopped, but, or maybe a little more than that. But once I came up with this idea of GVV, I was fortunate to have support from the Aspen Institute um, in the U.S. and then Yale School of Management. And, um, you know, we developed the approach as a pilot. I didn't know if anyone would be interested. And I sort of just started to ask people I knew to pilot it, to try it out. And I hoped it would expand to more business schools, but I really didn't know. I had no idea it would expand as far as it has. I mean, it's now not just being used in MBA programs, but undergraduate business. It's being used in companies around the world. It's been piloted and we're starting to move into healthcare and engineering and law and the military and the police. So, you know, there's, it's gone beyond the original vision, but I really just had this idea and I thought, it's an idea. Nobody owns ideas. And so I sort of tried to approach it in a kind of a, a pilot model, you know, sort of uh, design thinking, you know, put it out there and encourage people to play with it and make it better than what I thought of. And so what's nice is that although I wrote the original book, which came out from Yale 10 years ago, I guess now, and the original curriculum, but now People are writing new cases and developing new books. There's a GVV book series from Rutledge Publishing, and it's mostly written by other people who are applying it to their field, whether it's law or sustainability or accounting or healthcare. And so that's been really satisfying to me. I was listening to what you were saying, though, about some of the experiences that you've had. And it's interesting to me, you know, I think that we all can think of times when something happened and, you know, we, <laughs> we just, we tried and nothing happened, or maybe we didn't try or, you know, whatever. And that's real. I don't want to pretend that that doesn't happen because of course it does. But I also don't want us to assume that nothing can happen, you know, because you can find people who have acted effectively, but sometimes it really requires an incremental process over time. You talked about being ahead of your time, you know, sometimes the vocabulary doesn't exist. Sometimes you don't have a receptive audience. Sometimes you need to build a set of allies to sort of move it forward. It can't be one voice. I remember giving a talk once and there was a woman in the audience who was listening to me talk about giving voice to values. And while I spoke, she was in the back of the audience. I could see her face, you know, getting a little redder and she was agitated. And so when I finished speaking and I opened it up for comments or questions, her hand shot up right away. So I called on her and <laughs> she said, well, I just think this is stupid. <laughs> and I thought, uh oh, <laughs> and I said, okay, say a little more. You know, and she said, well, I don't need giving voice to values. She said, I always voice my values. And then she paused and she said, no one ever listens, but I always voice my values. And so, you know, what I said to her is, you know, well, that's the point of this. You know, if what we want is to just feel righteous, you can stamp your foot and shake your fist and speak truth to power. But if you want to actually have an impact, it might require some different strategies. And it's not, all, I always tell people it's not easy and it doesn't always work, but it's important and we can get better at it. Because part of what, you know, got me doing this is because after teaching in business schools for quite a while, I became discouraged. I thought it's impossible to do this because all I heard 
when we would raise ethical dilemmas in class were students talking about why we really can't do it. Telling stories like the ones that you honestly just told, you know, and I thought, well, maybe you can't. (laughs) But then I started hearing from other people through my own gathering stories and, and through others gathering stories of times when people had been effective. And then I saw, you know, the research I was telling you about, and I was thinking, you know, maybe we're going about this wrong. We're we're talking about it as if you have to just sort of fall on your sword and be a martyr for ethics. And that maybe what's more effective is to kind of normalize this. You know, values conflicts are not this rare thing. We have them every day, little ones, big ones, you know, with our family, with our friends. And if we could kind of normalize it, so that we could draw on the same skills we use when we try and promote a good idea in our organizations, when we try and convince our sibling of something, you know, whatever it is, if we could draw on those same skills, maybe. And if we could be patient when it's really a systemic issue, the challenges you described are not things that are going to turn around in a conversation. They require building an audience, you know, building an understanding. People are beginning to understand more about climate change now than they did 10 years ago. Things like that. And I think we don't train people for that, (laughs) you know. (laughs) In fact, what I would often see is that people who were really effective communicators and managers When it came to ethical issues, it was like they would dumb themselves down. It's like suddenly they felt the only strategy was to fall on their sword, you know, and be this martyr. And I would say, well, no, you're really good at reframing problems. You're really good at being persuasive. You're really good at selling an idea. Why don't you apply those same skills when it comes to values and ethics? And sometimes the ethicists would not like that when I said that, because they would say, well, you're not appealing to values and ethics. And I would just say, no, no, I'm just just actually trying to help people be more practical about getting it done, (laughs) you know, so... Yeah, well put, well put. And I'll evolve my story because basically the skill that I I up-leveled to was to lead by example. If Paulo Freire, I think the Chilean, said, make the path by walking, that's Mm -hmm. really been where I've pioneered. Just because there are no social enterprise law firms, well, let me build one. You know what I mean? good for you. (laughs) Because I can't go around the world doing public speaking now. Let me build a podcast to be my virtual podium and share my doctorate and wonderful authors like yourself and others. And I would just reference back, sometimes there are no conversations to be had. So when I was thinking about the doctorate, I ended up writing a song and publishing the song, which was played for a United Nations Global Compact Prime for Responsible Management Education in New Zealand in 2013. So I led into the doctorate with the song. My Field work actually doubled and went twice as long or 50% longer. And then I finished it with a graphic. So it was a very unusual mixed media doctorate for a poor management school that didn't quite know what to do with it. <laughs> as I said, I just made the path by walking. Um, I needed right. to do that. And sometimes you right. have to have the courage to do that. And clearly, your courage has been celebrated with the numerous awards and recognition that you've received in the area. Mm-hmm. What are you most proud of? Oh, geez. What am I most proud of? Well, you know, I guess one of the things I'm proud of is that I tried, I I actually feel like I'm trying to reframe the whole idea. So instead of it being moral courage, as we were just talking about, I tend to think about it as moral competence. Because what I've sort of found is that when you talk about courage, moral courage, it very much appeals to some folks 
But a lot of folks will sort of disqualify themselves. They'll kind of say, yeah, that's nice if you can afford it. <laughs> you know? Like the women or, in the field nice. <laughs> Yes, right, right. And so I'm not against courage. I mean, I think it's important and good. And, you know, I'm glad it's there. When, but, but I also feel like a lot of these situations, if we frame them more as opportunities for moral competence, more people could get engaged in them. You know, you'd be making it, there's seven pillars for giving away some values. And one of them is normalization. You'd sort of be making it normal, you know, so that I could draw on my full complement of skills. I'm proud, actually, that I think the idea of teaching and training around values and ethics is, in fact, evolving toward not simply letting people know what the rules are, but actually helping people develop the skill to act on those rules and to not frame it as separating good people from bad people, but actually helping people understand that we've all acted effectively on our values at some point. And we've all failed to do so in others. And so let's figure out what works for me and play to our strengths and practice them. You know, if you're if you're an introvert, you may do it very differently than an extrovert. If you're a risk averse person, you might do it very differently than a risk taker. But I find that anyone can do it. You just do it differently. <laughs> you know. And I'm very grateful that you're you're collecting the stories because I'm sharing my stories on the podcast. I'm a great believer in failing fast, but share the wisdom gained. It's so important. And to your point about rules, I believe rules are to be broken and boundaries to be broadened because if they're not working, come on, let's not do more of that. So I really celebrate the new book that's due out, the book Giving Voice to Values and Innovation and Impacted Gender that you're co-editing with Jerry Goodstein. Goodstein, yeah. Goodstein, my apologies. That's okay. So what was the most interesting thing that came out of collecting these thought leadership contributions? Yeah, that was was really a fun book to do because it's been about 10 years or a little more since we started GVV. And, you know, the original book was the concept, giving voice to values, how to speak your mind when you know it's right. But this book sort of has 15 chapters by chapter by folks in the in accounting and there's fact chapter about law and there's chapter about medicine and there's a chapter from some faculty in in Africa and China you know and so what's fun is it's showing that this kind of approach can be applied in so many different contexts because what I often ran into in the beginning is people would say well it's a nice idea Mary but it won't work here and so what's really encouraging about this book is talking about people in all those places where folks said it wouldn't work, who've actually been using it, you know, and so that's been very exciting. I'm hoping that the book will inspire people in lots of different settings to think about ways to use this methodology in their in their management practices, in their training and education, and in their own, you know, personal lives. And actually, one of the exciting things, there's a chapter in there by a friend and colleague, Deborah Newcomer, which is actually about technology and ways that technology can actually help expand the impact of giving voice to values. We have, you know, MOOCs and interactive online cohort-based modules, and we just finished a training with avatar simulations, and we're starting to write cases that address issues like racial bias and in artificial intelligence algorithms. So, you know, it, it actually has implications for so many different things. Versatile, so much that you could do. So Mary, I'm interested in, as you look back and as you look forward, if you had the ability to do anything you could, what's next? What's next? Hmm, that's really, I mean, 
the way I think of my life is I think of my life as I'm planting all these seeds and they come up when I least expect them, <laughs> you know? And so I really see myself as, you know, the phrase I always tell myself is I'm just trying to be helpful because if I actually say I want to do X, I feel like you can force it too much and, and you can actually engender resistance. And what I want is for people to own the idea. I don't feel like I own GVV. You don't need to always have me involved, although I'm happy to help. But I feel like I want people to own it and to take it to new places that I could never have taken it. So I really tend to think about, I just want to be helpful. If I were going to talk more selfishly and personally, I would love to see the implications for what I'm doing around two topics, wildlife conservation, because I'm just an animal person. My father was a veterinarian. And also, I know it's a particular issue here in the US, but I think it's an issue globally around, you know, if you want to voice your values, you, know, you need to have some some facts. And I think right now, our world is in a place where it's very hard to find a set of facts. They exist, but that people agree that they exist, you know. And so I'd like to sort of think about how some of the tools we've developed for voicing your values when you actually have a common set of facts, how they might be helpful in helping bridge these connections when people really are just starting from a different belief system in terms of what reality is. And I think it's a challenge we're facing these days. That leads me into my next question in terms of research and data. How has it evolved over the decade that you've been doing it? Is there more collected? How is it applied? Yeah, it's interesting. The work that I was inspired by when I first created Giving Wishes Values has only grown. There's much more research around behavioral ethics, behavioral economics, social psychology, cognitive neurosciences, where people talk about creating new neural pathways, research on habit formation. There's more and more of that kind of research out there. And what's interesting is that a lot of the research around social psychology and behavioral ethics sort of points out the degree to which we don't always act the way we say we will act, that we don't, you know, that people will say, well, I, I think integrity is important, but then they'll lie, things like that. And I think it's, or that decision-making biases and heuristics, you know, people will say, I believe in clear thinking and fairness, but then they will be influenced by biases and decision rules of thumb and things like that, that actually skew their thinking, bias their thinking. And so I think it's really, this research is really important. I think it's been very helpful, but unfortunately, I think sometimes the way it gets taught is see everybody lies, <laughs> you know, and it doesn't empower people then to do something about it, to act. It simply feeds a kind of skepticism or even cynicism. And so I actually feel that giving with the values is more, is kind of a, the perfect pedagogy for this kind of research. Because if, for example, we know that people tend to fall prey to certain biases, whether it's discounting the future and overweighting the short term, or whether it's group think, or whether it's false consensus bias, things like that. We know that we're vulnerable to those. We also know from the research that just because I know about them now doesn't make me proof against them. It means I may recognize it when you, Michelle, fall prey to them, but I'm still going to think that way. I'm still going to be biased in that way. And so I think giving voice to values is the perfect pedagogy for this because we don't villainize these biases. They're actually, they developed for evolutionarily useful reasons. You know, if you're running away from a saber-toothed tiger, you really can't think short-term, right? 
I mean, long term, you have to think short term. But what we try and do with GBV is to name the bias and then actually try and use it in our creating scripts and action plans. So if I'm arguing a position and I may argue for the long-term benefits of acting ethically, but let me think about some short-term benefits as well, or maybe some short-term costs that I can avoid. So in other words, I can try and understanding how we think, I can name the bias and then try and trigger it in the direction I'd like people to begin to be open. And I think that that actually is the beginning of the answer to the earlier question I was talking about, which is, what do we do when people are starting from different assumed assumed set of facts? You know, one is, one isn't, or maybe neither are facts, but we think they are. And this idea of actually naming the biases and actually trying to use them might be the beginning of the way to get at that as well. I appreciate your thoughts, Mary. So... Let's hear a little bit more about Mary, the person. What made you smile this month? This month, I'm actually getting to be with some friends for the first time in over a year in person because we've all been vaccinated and and the weather got warm and we could be outside together. And that was kind of a great relief. (laughs) You know, I feel fortunate because the work I do has been able to continue virtually like this. In fact, I think It's probably accelerated during the COVID pandemic because, you know, you're not spending three days flying to and from Australia. You're just, you're just doing it one afternoon, but there is something really wonderful about being with people. (laughs) So uh, absolutely. I I must confess I'm a in-person and real time girl. (laughs) Although it's nice that you've created this series for this period. Oh, absolutely. I accidentally fell into the podcast and I have had quite a a variety of careers. It's, this is like my fourth career and done degrees in three different disciplines and lots of geographical transfers. And when people look at it, they're like, what are you thinking? But when I look through <laughs> the lens of my values, it's totally clear. I'm into wisdom generation. I'm into conversation capturing. I have my passions. Mm-hmm. So the podcast actually was a bit of a divine wink and huh, you could do it all here and enjoy yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But I, really yeah, I know. Say thank you for the legacy, the impact, the transformation that you create around voicing your values. And I'll just let you share any last words, Mary. Well, I, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to share giving voice to values with your audience and to thank you for the the work you're doing to have these conversations. I think it's great. And if people are interested in learning more about how companies use GVV or schools or any other organization, they should feel free to be in touch. You can just go to givingvoicetovalues.org. Absolutely. I'll have all of your details in the show notes. I'm a big believer in sharing the good news and um, (laughs) celebrating the work. Thank you, Mary. Dr. Michelle St. Jean is a conscious steward of meaningful leadership in the world and the wider cosmos. Tune in every Thursday for real talk around life, leadership, and your conscious journey. Be ready to create and cultivate your dreams and soul-hearted desires. Your support is valued. Please subscribe. Leave a review and a rating. But more importantly, share with your connections.